Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today we bring you another episode from our Ask a Fellow series entitled Ace the Airway, all about intubation. My name is Leah Karianopoulos and I'm a PGY2 in internal medicine and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Jessica Spence. Jessica, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Leah. Um, so I, uh, I'm currently an ICU fellow in my first year of training. Um, I've completed a residency in anesthesia, and so in the, the weeks where I'm not working in the ICU, I do work still in the operating room. Awesome. So lots of experience with airways. <laughs> All right. So let's just jump right on into it. Um, when you're in the ICU getting ready to intubate a patient who you think needs an airway secured, what's your pre-intubation checklist? What are the key pieces you need to make sure are in place to set yourself up for success? So before I do anything, I review the patient's history and comorbidities, and I really try to focus on the features that may impact what medications I give or their ease of intubation or ventilation. Mm. I also set up the room, and this is all of this is kind of happening at the same time because usually if there's an airway to be managed in the ICU, it's you know relatively urgent. Yeah. So in the ICU, this usually involves pulling the bed away from the wall mm-hmm. and taking the headboard off. A lot of people don't think about that. <laughs> um, as well as just clearing away the miscellaneous pieces mm-hmm. of equipment that tend to clutter the bedside in the ICU. Always manage to gather a lot of stuff around there. It's true. <laughs> um, and then the you know, and probably most importantly, is I call for help. Mm. So right away, I make sure that if they're not there already, the RTs are called. Mm-hmm. And depending on my assessment of the patient, decide if I should be preemptively calling for somebody who has experience doing a surgical airway. This is really important because this is always going to be your ultimate, the ultimate final path in your difficult airway algorithm. Fair enough. Um, If I think the airway will be at all challenging, I call anesthesia when I'm on the ICU service. And despite the fact that I am actually an anesthesiologist who practices independently, I still do that because... um, Really, if you have an airway that's going to be very difficult, mm-hmm. um, you're never going to be faulted for having extra hands around or extra extra brains to think through the problem. Fair enough, yeah. Better safe than sorry, right? Definitely. Um, there's a lot of, uh, in medicine, there's sort of a sense that, that calling for help mm-hmm. is a sign of weakness or mm-hmm. a failure. And I would say that's absolutely not the case. When you're managing somebody's airway, ultimately there's somebody's life that's on the line. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, every everything you do should be carefully thought through, and mm-hmm. when you're managing an airway, it should be done with somebody who has experience who's comfortable doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even easy airways can be turned into very difficult airways if they've been instrumented by somebody who's inexperienced. Mm, fair and enough. So they can cause bleeding and trauma that that can really make a situation much worse. Fair enough. Um, Specifically before I intubate somebody, I go through a fo- uh, a, an informal checklist. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the mnemonic SOAP ME. Okay. So the first one is suction. So S for suction. Mm-hmm. This is actually key, especially in the ICU, because a lot of people have secretions yeah. or you know junk in the back of their throat. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're failing and they need to be intubated because they actually have... You know, a piece of, you know, they've aspirated or there's literally a huge mucus plug that's Mm -hmm. just migrated into their glottis and you can Mm -hmm. actually see it. Um, You can see exactly why they're failing. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure that your suction is set up and working. So all the little connections are attached. If you put your hand on the end, it actually does suck. Half the time things aren't turned on or working. 
Um, and if the patient has hemoptysis or is actively vomiting, which mm-hmm. are terrifying situations, yeah, um, I asked for two suction catheters to be set up so that you can put one suction uh, suction catheter on either side of the mouth. Mm, okay. Um, so the next thing you need to make sure you have is oxygen. That's kind of an obvious one, but Fair. you need to have a means of delivering it. So mm-hmm. usually that means a bag valve, valve mask. Yeah. Um, ideally, if you have a peep valve attachment, that's even better. Fair enough. Um, and then A is airway equipment. So okay. you want to make sure that you have all the equipment that you need to both ventilate and execute all the steps of your mm. intubation plan. And so at the very least, this should include an oral airway, mm-hmm. uh, several sizes of LMA mm-hmm. or supraglottic airway, um, several sizes of endotracheal tubes, and at least one with a stylet, okay. um, a laryngoscope, and mm-hmm. a bougie. Um, and for most people, a, a glide scope is either plan A or plan B for intubation. So that should be there set up and ready to go as well. Just ready beside you in case. Yeah, exactly. Um, P is pharmacologic agents. Mm-hmm. And so these are really going to depend on the patient's hemodynamics, mm-hmm. the comorbidities, and the ease with, with you, which you think you can intubate them. Um, in general, you should think about having a sedative, uh, a narcotic, mm-hmm. uh, because laryngoscopy is very, very stimulating. Absolutely. Um, and a vasoconstrictor like phenylephrine, because once mm-hmm. you take away somebody's sympathetic drive by yeah. inducing them to intubate them, um, almost invariably they'll drop their blood pressure. Fair. And so you need to be prepared to deal with that drop in mm-hmm. blood pressure. Makes sense. Um, you also have to think a bit about how you're going to sedate the patient after you intubate them and make mm-hmm. sure that the nurses have some infusions that are primed. Um, and then hand-in-hand hand with pharmacologic agents goes IV access. You need to make sure that the patient's IV is actually working. working. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it, you know, suddenly you can't imagine how frightening it would be if mm-hmm. suddenly you start to induce a patient and realize midway through your induction that yeah. the IV is interstitial yeah. or not running, and you're not sure Oof. how much medication the patient has received. <laughs> has actually gotten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um Finally, you want to make sure that the IV, when it's running, is free-flowing. You don't want to have it on a pump. Okay. Um, And then you want to decide if you or somebody else, one of the nurses or the other physicians in Mm -hmm. the ICU, is going to be the one that's pushing the drugs. Got it. Um, M is monitoring equipment. So at the very least, you should have continuous ECG monitoring and pulse oximetry, as well as a blood pressure cuff Mm -hmm. that cycles every three minutes. Makes sense. If you're worried about hemodynamic instability, then mm-hmm. and you have time, you might want to consider putting in an art line or asking one of the RTs or somebody else mm-hmm. who's around to throw one in as you're you're intubating the patient. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you should have an entitled CO2 detector to confirm tube placement. Um, most importantly, though, I think before I do anything, it's mm-hmm. really important that everybody that's involved in caring for that patient. Uh, knows what's going to be happening and knows what your first, second, and third plans are so that when they see you struggling, they can anticipate your next steps and be preparing to help you before you're even asking for help. Fair enough. So getting everyone's attention, making sure everyone's on the same page from the get-go so that there's no chaos sort of as you're trying to redirect. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Um, Awesome. And so sort of right at the start, you mentioned how one of your first steps is assessing the patient, seeing how difficult you think getting the airway might be, sort of factors that make each situation unique. Um, What do you use to predict which airways will be difficult? um, And what preemptive steps do you take if you think it will be challenging? Um, So that's a very good question. Um, There's lots of different tools that have been developed. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them have very very poor validation characteristics, Mm -hmm. so it's really important to look at the overall patient. 
Um, and it's important to distinguish between recognizing patients who may be difficult to intubate mm. and patients who may be difficult to ventilate or bag mask. Yeah. Um, in many ways, it's actually much more important mm-hmm. to identify patients who are difficult to ventilate because if you're able to ventilate somebody, you can temporize until help gets there. Fair enough. If you can't ventilate them, you are pooched and yeah. the patient's going to become hypoxemic mm-hmm. regardless of how easy or difficult it is to get the tube in. Fair enough. Um, so those are sort of the, the most important things mm-hmm. uh, to assess. Um, if you can't, uh, secondly, it's important to realize that despite the availability of many identifiable risk factors mm-hmm. and mnemonics to go with them, uh, patients can be diff- uh, patients are hard to identify as difficult a priori. There is actually mm-hmm. a Danish study of approximately 188,000 wow. intubations by anesthesiologists in Denmark, mm-hmm. and they found that about of about 3,100 difficult airways that were defined as those requiring three or more intubation attempts by anesthesiologists, mm-hmm. so very difficult. Of those 3,100 difficult airways, um, 93% wow. were unanticipated, and so it's more often than not that mm-hmm. we won't be able to recognize a difficult airway um, in advance. And so that's why it's, it's so important to call for help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you're, particularly if you're somebody who's not uh, not experienced. experienced. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the numbers in terms of, of predicting people who are difficult to bag mass mm-hmm. ventilate are similar. And, and so, you know, while there's, while it can be difficult to identify, there are some things that should immediately set your alarm bells ringing, mm-hmm. where um, almost universally they will be associated with uh, difficult intubation or bag mass ventilation. So mm-hmm. the mnemonic that I use to think of uh, the features associated with difficult bag mass ventilation mm-hmm. include um, uh, beards, so B, uh, O for obesity, mm-hmm. N for no teeth, okay. uh, E for elderly, mm-hmm. and S for sleep apnea. And that that's that. Those form the basis for the mnemonic bones. bones All those things are things that are largely going to make it difficult mm-hmm. uh, to get a good seal with your mask because mm-hmm. that can often be challenging in somebody with facial hair or who has limited facial structure either because they have no teeth or because yeah. they've lost elasticity in their skin because they're elderly mm-hmm. um, or if they have a lot of uh, upper airway soft tissue as in obesity or sleep apnea. Fair enough. Um, Additional features that you have to think about that may be associated with difficult LMA insertion mm-hmm. include restricted mouth opening. If somebody can't open their mouth, it's yeah. hard to get a big floppy piece of plastic <laughs> Makes sense. into the back of their throat. Um, obstruction of the upper airway. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's striderous or in extremis because you think they've aspirated on something, mm-hmm. it may be difficult because you may be just blowing a whole bunch of air against food particles yeah. or... Um, Fixed obstruction. Exactly. Right. Um, distorted airways, so mm-hmm. patients who have anatomically distorted airways is, are notoriously different, difficult to seat LMAs mm-hmm. in. Um, and then stiff lungs or C-spines. Okay. Um, the mnemonic I used to remember those things is RODS, so Got R-O-D-S. It. Fair enough. Um, finally, getting to difficult laryngoscopy. Um, again, there's multiple lists that have been identified. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the features include somebody who has a short neck, mm-hmm. um, big teeth or protruding incisors, people with high arched palates, uh, people with poor neck mobility. Um, anybody who's had previous head and neck surgery or radiation should be immediately setting off alarm bells because mm. those patients can often be difficult to ventilate and intubate. Mm. Um, and patients with head and neck cancers. 
And then obviously any sort of upper airway obstruction like burns or angioedema, dental Mm -hmm. abscesses, upper airway tumors. Um, People with uh, shortened thyromental distance. Mm -hmm. So essentially the the distance from the tip of the chin to the Mm -hmm. top of the thyroid cartilage when the neck is fully extended. If it's less than seven centimeters, that can be associated with difficult airway. Mm -hmm. Um, And the inability to protrude the jaw such that the lower teeth bite the upper lip. Um, and, of course, everyone's favorite, which is the melon patty score, which is actually <laughs> probably the weakest predictor um, in know. terms of sensitivity and specificity. Got it. They can't see me, but I've been sitting there, like, doing these things <laughs> myself as you've been saying them. Um, I, I like that you emphasize that because I think I've noticed, like, in watching and being on rotations where there's a combination of anesthesia and medicine residents, the anesthesia residents are always so reliable about going and doing that assessment preemptively and taking a look at the patient and assessing these things whereas I find as medicine residents because we just don't have that exposure to the airway and aren't used to that planning stage that often gets just brushed past and so I think it's always good to stop and and think about it. Particularly since um, even if you don't anticipate that the patient will be especially difficult Mm -hmm. to intubate um, different features may help you develop your plan. So somebody who has you know, a shorter thyromental distance, mm-hmm. but otherwise good mouth space, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you may think about something like uh, a bougie that sure. would help you invaluably because most likely their airway is going to be anterior, mm-hmm. similar with a patient with a short neck, as yeah. opposed to patients who have you know, high-grade mal patty scores mm-hmm. um, with lots of soft tissue in their upper airways because they're obese or have sleep apnea, mm-hmm. those patients are often um, easy to intubate with a glidescope just because it's such a large tool. Fair. Uh, it helps get the soft tissue out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that same device won't necessarily help you if somebody's got limited mouth opening because the glidescope is quite big and so Fair. it can be difficult to, to mm-hmm. get in the mouth. And so all those features will help you develop mm-hmm. your plan A, B, and C yeah. um, when you're trying to figure out how you're going to manage this patient. Fair enough. Um, Okay, so let's say you've completed your assessment, you've set up the room, now you're looking to medications to pull up for induction. What do you use? When? How do you decide? Right, and and so that's a very good question. I think, again, it sort of speaks back to the need to just ask for help Mm. because the reality is that, you know, anesthesiologists do five years of residency Mm -hmm. training to figure out, to learn about how to safely intubate and and manage somebody's airway. So unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's not really an easy recipe. There's ups and downs to every medication, Mm -hmm. but it's also going to be difficult, different, uh, you know, according to the patient that's using the medication, because Mm -hmm. people are more comfortable managing the side effects of medications they use routinely within their practice. So different practitioners will have different approaches, Mm -hmm. um, to everything and Mm -hmm. it's not unfortunately it's not as simple as there's like a recipe to follow which a lot of more junior people really want because it would make things so much easier Um, in general I would say probably less is more in the ICU because Mm. the patients are unstable Um, you know uh, drugs like propofol tend to really drop blood pressure Mm. particularly when you give it in the doses that are usually given in the operating room in elective patients Mm. Um, oftentimes those doses are enough to make patients arrest in the ICU if they're unstable. Um, and so in general, I would say just be cautious mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and ask for somebody to help you who has some experience. Fair enough. Um, and then to kind of build on that, mm-hmm. um, I, feel, I feel like it's often hotly debated to use a paralytic or right. not. 
There's ups and downs. Mm. I mean, I would say in general, if you are a trainee, a junior trainee mm-hmm. who doesn't have airway experience in the ICU, absolutely not. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> but that said, there's very specific times and places where, you know, and, and I don't uniformly use paralysis in the ICU, but mm-hmm. I do in very specific situations. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, if, if a patient is already... So it, when you're using a paralytic, you're mm-hmm. using it because... Um, you're worried that the patient's motion is going to impede your ability to manage their airway. Yeah. If somebody has no teeth mm-hmm. and is obtunded before I've given them any medications mm-hmm. and is not responding to the oral airway that I've placed in their mouth, mm-hmm. probably I don't need paralysis. <laughs> yeah. um, as opposed to the young mm-hmm. but hemodynamically unstable patient mm-hmm. um, who will likely require quite a bit of sedation and mm-hmm. even then the doses of sedation that are required are almost certainly going to be unsafe if they're hemodynamically unstable. Fair. Um, in those situations uh, I will often use a paralytic but again mm-hmm. there's there's subtleties in approach and mm-hmm. it's very it's very much tailored to the situation. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is you know Again, once you once you paralyze somebody in the ICU, mm-hmm. if you're not able to bag them, you're you're in trouble. Yeah, you're committed to. You're you're pretty committed. Yeah. But that said, um, by the same token, if you've just given somebody, you know, two Aversed mm-hmm. and 100 fentanyl and 50 propofol, and they're not breathing, yeah, you're just as much in trouble Fair. because it'll take about as you know it won't take as long for mm-hmm. those medications to wear off, but it's still long enough for them to become hypoxic yeah. and go into PA. Absolutely, and the time it takes for them to wear off paralytic or not, you've exactly. already had to do something definitive. Exactly. So proceed with caution regardless. Exactly. That's the key takeaway. Exactly. Um, fair enough. Um, all right, so let's go on. Like Now that we've all set up, how do you optimally position your patient? Because, again, I feel like it's something that's mm-hmm. super important and often overlooked. How do you really set yourself up at the head of the bed there for success? It's a very good question, and, and I think it's especially pertinent because, it, again, many of the relatively easy airways that I've mm-hmm. been called to help people manage – it's as simple as just positioning the patient a little bit better that you can actually really change the intubating conditions. Mm-hmm. So let's start by reviewing the goals of positioning. Right. So to orally intubate, what you need to do is you need to bring the path from the incisor teeth to the larynx into a straight line. Mm-hmm. And so this path has three axes, which I'm sure anybody who's rotated in their sort of <laughs> their clerkship anesthesia rotation will vaguely recall. Mm-hmm. Um, the three axes are the, the axis of the cavity of the mouth or the oral axis, yeah. the axis of the cavity of the pharynx or the mm-hmm. pharyngeal axis, and the axis of the larynx and the trachea, the laryngeal axis. Mm-hmm. And so um, the angle of the axis of the mouth to the larynx is normally... 90 degrees, mm-hmm. and that of the pharynx to the trachea is obtuse. Um, aligning them is really just a matter of applied mechanics. What you mm-hmm. do is um, essentially move the he- patient's head and neck into an optimal position, and then use the l- laryngoscope blade to make the final adjustment. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, keep in mind here I'm talking about patients without a risk of C spine injury, yeah. because in those patients, you're really going to want to use manual inline stabilization and mm-hmm. you want to avoid moving the neck. Makes sense. Um, but um, in any case, what you want to do is align those three axes and okay. then make sure the patient's head is at the level of the lower tip of your breastbone or your xiphoid process, okay. which gives you the best mechanical advantage. Mm. Um, so 
by aligning the pharyngeal and laryngeal axes, Mm -hmm. um, what you do is you bring the patient's head into what we call the sniffing position. So in this position, the cervical spine is straight, Mm -hmm. um, and the the patient's neck is flexed um, at the roughly C7, C8 mm-hmm. position, and then extended uh, at the in the C1, C2 position. Okay. So if you can imagine this, just picture how somebody who's out of breath holds their head, so mm-hmm. they're forward and tilted slightly back. Mm. Um, another an- analogy is, is picturing the sword swallower. So in order to pass <laughs> right. the sword without injury down the, the esophagus, which is parallel to the trachea, everything has to be in line as straight as possible. Fair enough. Um, and so how do you actually, like, using pillows, using, like, what do you use to physically get them into the best position possible? You're sort of limited to what you have, unfortunately, Fair. in the ICU. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time that's pillows or folded mm. towels, folded sheets, rolled blankets. Sometimes there's foam donuts. Um, sometimes you actually just need to get somebody to help you by holding their head. Fair. You know, you need to get a helper to mm-hmm. hold the patient's head into a good position. Mm-hmm. Um Particularly to keep in mind, if the patient's obese, uh, the AP width of their chest wall and mm-hmm. their breast tissue can really uh, interfere with laryngoscopy and visualization. And so often in these patients, I would recommend building a shallow ramp, mm. uh, usually again with blankets or sheets or pillows, mm-hmm. and with the goal of aligning the ear canal with the sternum, which mm. often really improves your ability to open the mouth and see the larynx. Um, Sometimes, too, you can just change the position of the patient's bed. So if you just uh, do a head-up position, that's Mm. often more than enough. Enough to align everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to make sure I haven't missed it, we're trying to get the axes as linear as possible. So you have a nice straight view, like the sword swallower. Um, And so you want, in in most patients, and then especially obese patients, the ear sort of in line with the patient's siphoid. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the patient's height themselves, you want sort of their head at the level of your siphoid. Right. Have have I got that? Yeah. All right. Um, And then using kind of whatever you've got to to make that happen. All right. Okay. So let's say you've you've got everything ready. You've got your first plan. You get in there with presumably direct laryngoscopy, let's let's say, and you're just unsuccessful. You just can't get the view you need, can't get the tube in. Um, What are your next steps? How do you proceed? Um, So if I'm even, even... If, if I'm even struggling a little bit, mm. I have a very low threshold for calling for help early. And that's even when I'm on his anesthesia staff. Fair. Um, when you're intubating the ICU, the nurses and the RTs are there to help you. And they're really great. But the, if you're struggling, the, the person who's going to be able to help you the best is another physician. Fair. Um, now, who this actually is is going to depend on where you work. Um, it might be the intensivist if they're around. It mm. might be the person on call for anesthesia. It might be the eMERGE doc. It might be the resident who's on call for the ICU down the hall who mm. happens to have a bit more airway experience. Fair. But ideally, it's somebody with some skills in airway management. Um, but even somebody who can help manage hemodynamics and sedation while you focus on the airway. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Just an extra set of uh, set of hands and mm. another brain to help sort through the yeah. problem. Um, in terms of an algorithm for steps to follow, um, I follow the difficult airway algorithm that's issued by the Difficult Airway Society, okay. uh, which is a society of the UK. There's very similar algorithms that are issued by other organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, any one of them can be used. They're all essentially identical. Mm-hmm. Um, so specifically, the first step in the difficult airway algorithm is determining if 
you're able to ventilate a patient. Mm. If you're able to ventilate a patient, either just um, using a, uh, an oral airway and a bag valve mm-hmm. mask, then um, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, because that gives you something to do while you're waiting for help to arrive. Fair. And so personally what I would do, if, if I truly was struggling mm-hmm. um, and I was able to bag the patient, mm-hmm. I would just sit there and bag the patient. Worst comes to worst, you can throw in an LMA. Yeah. Um, I would wait for help or other devices, mm-hmm. other people to get there. Um, just because the more you, more attempts at laryngoscopy you make, mm-hmm the more trauma you cause. Even somebody who is very skillful at airway mm-hmm. management, anytime you stick a laryngoscope into yeah. somebody's oropharynx, you are mm-hmm. causing trauma. Fair. Um, and particularly, you know, with with tubes that are, if you're poking into the patient's mm-hmm. airway, you can get very swollen cords. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, you know, the patient that previously would have been reasonably easy mm-hmm. to intubate is now very, very difficult. Fair enough. So knowing your limits and knowing them early enough to Absolutely. recruit help. Okay. Absolutely. I think the take home for all of this would be that, you know, call for help, call mm-hmm. for help early. Um, airway management is really something that you do as a team. Even if you're an anesthesiologist, if you're mm-hmm. an eMERGE doc, you still have a team of people, whether it's RTs or nurses, who yeah. are helping you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so nobody is ever going to fault you for calling for help, but mm-hmm. you will definitely be faulted if something bad happens because mm-hmm. you didn't call for help or you called too late. Fair enough. Absolutely. That was all really, really fantastic. So thank you for taking me through that. Um, before we go, um, how about we go through um, a few like key take-home, don't forget points. Can you go through that? Absolutely. So if you haven't already gathered, I think the first <laughs> take-home point should be call for help. Yeah. Um, you never want to end up in a position where you're uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, because you know, it's nothing good is going to come of trying to manage something yourself that you're not comfortable in managing. Fair enough. Um, the second thing is just take some time to assess the patient mm-hmm. um, and examine them, uh, both to determine whether or not you think they possibly might be difficult to intubate or mm-hmm. ventilate, recognizing that oftentimes we're not the best at that. Yeah. Um, take some time. Number three would be take some time to position the patient. So mm-hmm. that includes both positioning the patient on the bed, but also positioning the, pa- the bed within the room. So pull it mm-hmm. away from the wall, get the headboard off, yeah. make some room, make sure you're not climbing over things mm-hmm. or in an awkward position. Um, fourth would be figure out what your plan A, B, and C are, mm-hmm. and then communicate them loudly and clearly to everybody who's around who's going to be helping you. Um, and make sure you have all the stuff that you need Mm-hmm. to uh, enact your plans. Um, and then last, I think, again, what I would just say to re-emphasize, just call for help. Yeah. Call for help, call for help, call for help. <laughs> Fair enough. Don't hesitate. Yeah, not something to be cavalier about or to try and take off on, on your own. Exactly. Got it. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for sitting down with me to do this. This was super helpful, um, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much <laughs> for inviting me. Thank you for listening to today's Ask a Fellow episode entitled Ace the Airway. Today's episode was recorded with Dr. Jessica Spence and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas. Music by Lakshman Vasanthamoan. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit www.theinternetwork.com for our associated infographic and additional resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.